the close allies of the U.S. in the Arab region are autocrats. All the Arabs are autocrats. And the problem is not just that these rulers are, are violent and brutal, it's that they've all been like this for many, many years. The Arab region is the only part of the world where not a single government has been validated by its own citizenry. That's Rami Khouri, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Rami Khouri on Arab autocracies and U.S. policy. Autocracy, concentrated power in the hands of a few. The United States is linked to a network of Arab autocracies led by sultans, emirs, and military dictators who are called allies and partners. Politics and economics make for strange bedfellows. Perhaps none is stranger than the feudal regime of Saudi Arabia. The Washington-Riyadh access goes back to 1945 when FDR met King Saud on a U.S. destroyer in the Suez Canal. The deal was struck. The U.S. would protect the Saud monarchy, and in return, American corporations would have access to Saudi oil fields. In the years since, ties between the two countries have remained close. Today, the U.S. has been supporting the Saudi-led war in Yemen, which has resulted in almost 400,000 dead and millions hungry. Joining us is Rami Khouri. He's reported on the Arab region for decades. He's a senior fellow with the Middle East Initiative at the Belfer Center at Harvard's Kennedy School. He was the founding director of the Issam Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut. His articles appear in major newspapers around the world. I talked with Rami Khouri at the Middle East Studies Association annual conference in Denver in early December. Well, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be with you again. Two external events to the Arab world are the Ukraine war and the uprising in Iran. Let's start with Iran. Since mid-September, Iranians have taken to the streets to protest government policies. Despite the regime's violent crackdown, protests have continued. Demonstrators are shouting death to the dictator. The Islamic Republic of Iran has never faced such widespread opposition. Can it remain in power? That remains to be seen. The slogan of the protesters is Zan Zandegi Azadi, woman, life, freedom. Now, what kind of influence will events in Iran have on the Arab states, particularly Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, all of whom have close ties with Tehran. On the uh, level of uh, impact of any change in Iran, on Arab countries, you really have to look at the political relationships. So the Iranian government is uh, super close with Hezbollah. It has huge interests in Iraq with various uh, popular mobilization units and militias and political groups. Hezbollah being in Lebanon. Hezbollah in Lebanon. 
And then you have the Iranian government supporting the Syrian government uh, significantly for, for many years. If there is any change in the government in Iran or a moderation of their policies, both of which I don't expect, but they're possible, there will be uh, impact on, on other countries. There will also be impacts in terms of their relations with the Gulf Arab countries, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Qatar particularly. Uh, so these are all in the realm of the possible. We don't know what's going to happen. But what's more significant, I think, is that the fact that these demonstrations are going on, persisting, even in the face of uh, crackdowns and, and hundreds of people killed, I think, um, this is fascinating because what it tells us is that the Iranian people and the Iranian political system is going through, has been and continues to go through a similar tra trajectory as many, if not most, of the Arab countries, which is that uh, autocratic, often corrupt, and inefficient governments leave most of the citizens feeling neglected, uh, underserved, subjugated, and eventually people put up with this for years, but eventually they don't put up with it anymore, and they break out of their silence and they, they demonstrate. Now, the Iranians, like many Arab countries, have done this many times. Uh, this is not the first time Iranians demonstrate, but this is the most uh, widespread and lasting uh, demonstration, I think, in the last 10 years. Uh, so that's really what's so fascinating, is that Iran and the Arab countries share a similar uh, context of uh, disenchanted uh, citizens who ultimately reach the point of desperation, and then they react, and this is what's going on. And Iran, of course, being a non-Arab country, Shia majority. How has the Ukraine war impacted the Arab world? And I should say I have sometimes trouble using that term, the Arab world, because it's not a monolith. I think there's so much diversity from Iraq to Morocco. But for want of a better term, I guess we'll use it. But anyway, it strikes me as somewhat um, orientalist. Well, the, on your first point, there is a better term, which is the Arab region, which is what I talk about. Um, the Arab, there is no single Arab world. There were moments in the last hundred years when political sentiments across all Arabic-speaking countries were aligned with each other, uh, but that didn't last very long. So you have great differences, as you mentioned, um, in, in many arenas, and each country behaves differently. But they're all Arab countries. They're members of the Arab League. The majorities of their people speak Arabic. And therefore, the, I talk of the Arab region. Um, so the Arab region uh, has been impacted by the Ukraine war at several uh, levels. Um, one is uh, at the popular level. I, I think a majority of people in Arab countries look at how the West reacted so vehemently and decisively and militarily and politically to the Russian uh, assault on Ukraine and have not done anything similar with the Israeli assault on Palestinians and other Arabs. So that's at one level of popular sentiment. It has exacerbated this uh, already powerful sense that there are double standards among the Western countries, especially the United States, um, and they are emphasized once again in Ukraine. The second problem is the issue of 
the wheat, uh, uh, wheat and fertilizer shipments. Uh, and these are tr troubling for most people around the world who rely on Ukraine for a lot of those goods. Uh, but they seem to have sorted that out now with the UN uh, Secretary General's intervention, and they are shipping uh, their products. So that's going to be less of a problem. There was fears of huge food stress, not enough supplies, and big increases in prices that would drive the middle class in most Arab countries to further decline. Uh, but I think that's less of a problem. The third interesting dimension of this is where do you line up on this situation in Ukraine, if you're an Arab country, if you're an Arab government. You want to maintain good ties with the Russians. Uh, you want to maintain good ties with the US and the West. Uh, and you're being forced to choose in many ways. Uh, so not only Arab countries, but Israel has faced the same uh, dilemma of you know trying to kind of stay above the fray and say, well, you know, we're not supporting either side. And, we're not condemning either side. We, we just we have nothing to do with this, so leave us alone. But that doesn't work. You can't do that because uh, in an interconnected world, people have to take a position. Uh, so I think the, the position that most people take is that the war should stop. If there are gen genuine grievances, they should be negotiated. Um, and certainly most people think the Russians carried out unacceptable aggression. They got in return what happens when you do that? People fight back. Washington likes to talk a lot about sovereignty and sanctity of borders, uh, pointing to the Russian invasion of uh, the Ukraine as an example of that. But take, for example, the Syrian Golan Heights, which have been uh, were conquered militarily and have, has now been annexed into Israel formally. There's virtually no commentary on this. It's kind of disappeared. It has disappeared because there's nobody in the world who really cares about it, unfortunately, other than the Syrians and many people in, in Arab countries. They keep uh, setting up settlements. They keep expelling uh, Palestinians out of their homes and destroying their schools and, and, um, and community centers as they're doing south of Hebron now. Uh, and they're get, trying to get more Palestinians out of Jerusalem so that they can have a, a, a full Jewish majority in Jerusalem. But it, it's not possible for the Israelis to fully Judaize these territories, either geographically or demographically. The Arab population west of the Jordan River is now greater than the Jewish population. Uh, they're just a, a little bit more uh, and this is a trend that's been going on over years. There are birth rate is higher. So there are more Arabs than Israelis or Jews in the, in the land that Israel says is its ancestral home, which they say includes uh, the West Bank and Jerusalem and, and all of Israel. So the, the long-term trend is not in Israel's favor. It cannot uh, uh, you know, get rid of uh, six, seven million uh, Palestinians. And all it does is create anxieties around the world for people who are supporters of Israel, but see it blatantly carrying out apartheid, violent, racist policies. Um, and this is a growing sentiment among people in Europe, North America, and other places. Um, and the Israelis have been able so far to minimize the damage, but every month or two, some major international uh, group comes out with a report about Israeli apartheid. Um, so the, the, the long-term trend for the for Israel is one that um, 
really is going to require them to negotiate some kind of uh, fair arrangement whereby Israelis and Palestinians either share or split the land of historic Palestine and each one gets a state. Nobody knows what's feasible, what's going to work. But this current situation can be maintained as it was in South Africa with military force, uh, but at some point it falls apart. And you, it's interesting to note that in South Africa, it was the uh, F.W. de Klerk, the white South African leader, who re recognized this reality and negotiated with Mandela, and they came up with an agreement. And I'm hoping one day something like that will happen in Israel, not with the current government, which is very right-wing, but these co governments come and go. Public opinion changes, conditions change, um, so we can't predict the future at all. What does the Arabic word samidun mean? Samidun means uh, that we're steadfast. Uh, sumud, uh, uh, steadfastness, samidun is that we, uh, we are uh, steadfast. That we're gonna you know, hold our ground, this is our country, we've lived here for hundreds and hundreds of years, we have the deeds to the land, and we're not gonna be scared away. The Israelis can destroy houses, um, they can expel people, but in the long run, the current trends are not sustainable. Uh, and the steadfastness of the Palestinians is pretty heroic, uh, but is not recognized as such in the West because it runs against the prevalent sense that, well, the Israelis are right, and the Arabs are wrong, and uh, but this is changing. So this is we're at a really historic turning point in the contest between Zionism and Arabism that goes back a hundred years, and particularly in the public uh, component uh, of that conflict, say in the U.S. or Canada or Europe and the Western world, where historically the Israelis could get anything they wanted, and they and they were very successful by lobbying, by this, by that, by, by pushing false slogans about the Palestinians and about Zionism making the desert bloom and all this stuff. They got away with it for about 100 years. But this changed in May, June of 2021. What happened this then? Changed. What happened then was you had this incredible response by Palestinians when the Israelis attacked Gaza and they were taking homes in Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem and expelling Palestinians from them to put in Jewish settlers, there was a massive response from Palestinians everywhere in Palestine and around the world. And suddenly, for the first time, two things happened, there were three things that were really critical, and we're seeing the after effects of those. One is that the settler colonial tradition of Israel was seen live on TV and on social media with Israeli settlers going to Arabs and Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, saying, get out of here, we're going to take this home. I mean, it was amazing to watch. If you ever wondered how settler colonialism worked, you could watch it live on, on YouTube or Facebook or whatever. The second thing that happened is that the uh, Palestinians were able to speak for themselves. Because of social media and the mainstream media started realizing what we've been saying for years, that this settler colonialism, which has resulted in apartheid in Israel against the Palestinians, is not sustainable and it's got to be changed like it was in South Africa. And the Palestinians, for the first time in my life, were uh, speaking uh, in one voice and they were given access to the world's media. This made a huge impact in the traditional media as well as in social media. And the third thing is that you had 
Palestinians everywhere involved in this steadfast response, uh, inside Israel, in the occupied territories, in the refugee camps in Arab countries, all over the world, you saw this unified voice of the Palestinians saying the same thing. So that was a turning point, and we're seeing the consequences of that now, where Israelis cannot get away with the old tricks they used to play. For instance, if they don't like somebody, they'd say, he, oh, he's an anti-Semite. In the past, if you called somebody an anti-Semite in the U.S., it destroyed their career. Now, you know, if you call somebody an anti-Semite and you don't have evidence, they're going to take you to court, and, and the court is going to show that you're wrong. You, the Israelis, by making these accusations, intimidating people, you don't have the evidence. This is, uh, this is just fake uh, accusations, and they can't get away with it now like they used to. And the second part of that same dynamic is there's a massive move among the Israeli government to stop the boycott, uh, BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement to pressure the Israelis uh, to uh, stop their apartheid policies. And Israel has tried to create laws in the U.S. in the uh, federal and the state level to make it a crime to boycott somebody politically. Well, these laws have all been now uh, challenged in court all across the U.S. And in every single case, uh, the courts have ruled that, no, this is free speech. You're allowed to boycott somebody peacefully if you don't use violence or if you want to just refuse to deal with them or refuse to buy their product, you're allowed to do that. It's part of the constitutional free speech guarantee. So the, the traditional system of Zionist propaganda and political pressure that helped them achieve their state in 48 and maintain their control of the occupied territories since 67, those patterns are degrading, fraying at the edges, and uh, will be changed. Let's talk about uh, Washington's network of uh, friends, allies, partners, as they're called in the region. Uh, how would you characterize them? Some say they're feudal monarchies, sultanates, and dictatorships. Well, th those are terms that are pretty accurate, and some of them are worse than others. Uh, some of them are mild autocrats. Some of them are vicious autocrats. Um, well, let's uh, focus on Saudi Arabia, led by Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, as he's called often in the media. He's deeply implicated in the murder, by the way, of the Saudi Washington Post journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. Well, Jamal Khashoggi was a friend of mine. I knew Jamal well, and uh, we talked often over the years. And uh, so uh, when this happened, I wasn't surprised that there was a, a reaction among journalists and among politicians in some Western countries to find out, you know, did the Crown Prince have a role in this? And most of the investigations that have been carried out, including by the CIA, suggest that he did. He was involved directly somehow. Um, but this doesn't, this is something that we're still learning, that facts don't matter to political relationships. The truth is, is an incidental dynamic to the mechanisms of countries having relations with each other. Um, so the U.S. knows that Hamad bin Salman um, uh, has carried out criminal activity, has sanctioned it, and they don't particularly want to make any major uh, changes in their relationships with him because they have other aspects of their relationships with the Saudis that are too valuable in terms of economic, uh, military, commercial, uh, and other relationships. 
So you know the 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 hard business of state to state policy making and relationships and alliances is very uh, cold and brutal, and it really doesn't take into account real people, even when they're murdered and cut up with a bone saw at the uh, command or approval of the crown prince of the country, as happened in, in Saudi Arabia. So this was a particularly bad case of you know, real gruesome uh, barbarism uh, by a person who essentially runs uh, Saudi Arabia. But these are um, situations that are uh, played out all across the region to a less barbaric degree. So you have leaders like in Egypt and in Syria and other places where they're oppressing their people, they're jailing human rights activists, they're intimidating people for just for their tweets or whatever. So most of the close allies of the U.S. in the Arab region uh, are autocrats. I mean, all the Arabs are autocrats. There are no uh, Arab Democrats anymore. Tunisia was a breakthrough and it fell back. Um, and the problem is not just that these rulers are, are violent and brutal, um, it's that they've all been like this for many, many years. There's something unusual that makes the Arab region the only part of the world that is totally and chronically non-democratic. The Arab region is the only part of the world where not a single government has been validated by its own citizenry. And this is bizarre, and I don't know the f exact reason for it, but I'm working on figure figuring it out for a book I'm writing now about my 50 years of covering the region. Uh, but this is a reality that doesn't matter to Washington and London and Paris and, and Moscow decision makers. They don't care if people are nice to each other or not. They just want to know we have access to their uh, ports, we have access to their oil, we have access to their arms purchases, and their... And the network of military bases which and, and dot the, the region. And Exactly, the bases which are, I think there's something like 60 or 70 now American military facilities across the region. So this is a big problem, and it, it brings up a bigger point. The bigger point, is, as I see it, is that we are still in the colonial period. Colonial uh, powers, Britain, France, g gave independence to many of their colonies or, or their protectorates or their mandates in the 30s and 40s and 60s. And, uh, but in fact, we did not have a real transfer of sovereign authority from the imperial heartland to the local rulers. The colonial mechanisms of governance have continued in the post-colonial independence period in virtually all Arab countries. So if you take Saudi Arabia, or Saudi Arabia wasn't colonized, but if you take Jordan or Morocco or Syria or Lebanon or any of them, Egypt, the, the, the systems that the colonial powers used are still in place use of military force, small local elites who are handpicked and given power, totally disregarding the sentiments of ordinary people in those countries, and uh, using uh, intimidation and force and, and, and enticement to uh, buy people to go along with your policies and to make sure that everything that these countries do serves the interests of the imperial um, a mother country, whether it's England or France or the U.S. or whatever. So this is really troubling to me 
that we still have this general situation, but it's something that I think scholars and others are trying to explore more these days. Sarah Lee Whitson of uh, Dawn, Democracy in the Arab World Now, writes, I'm quoting, the gravy train of America's largest, most lucrative we weapons purchaser in the world, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, when they also happen to sit on 22% of the world's oil reserves. So talk about uh, the UAE and, and how it aligns with Saudi Arabia. The UAE and Saudi Arabia, around 2010, 2011, when the Arab uprisings, the so-called Arab Spring happened, UAE and Saudi Arabia were scared out of their mind. They were terrified that uh, populations were rising up, getting rid of their autocratic regimes, and creating more open democratic systems and Islamist winning elections, like in Egypt. Uh, and in Tunisia to an extent. And this scared the daylights out of them. So they decided around 2011, and they, they articulated this to be fair to them. They, they said to people, we're not gonna sit around and just watch the region uh, fall into the hands of, of populist uh, forces and Islamist groups and democratic parties, because that's not what we want, because they feared that if you did have that trend happening, their kind of rule, royal families with a lot of money who make all the decisions and totally disregard the public opinion in their countries and other countries, that rule would be threatened. So they pushed back successfully. Um, the Saudis were not as uh, efficient or uh, competent as the Emiratis. The Emiratis were very competent at using public relations techniques and and hiring consultants and spending a lot of money buying off people in different countries. Um, and they were very good at image making. The Emiratis have created this image of themselves as modern and, and daring and uh, you know doing th all kinds of stuff that the West likes. So they created a ministry of happiness. They, they're gonna send a, a, a mission to the Mars or something. You know, so they, they're involved in a massive public relations exercise uh, which is not really reflecting the reality on the ground, because these are very small countries with very small populations. Um, all, most of the achievements that have happened in their countries have largely been done by foreign people who have been contracted to do the work. And uh, uh, so the Emiratis and the Saudis both shared a general view of the changes in the region that they saw happening and were afraid of, and they wanted to stop it, and they did stop it, to a large extent uh, by helping the autocratic authoritarian forces or military forces in some countries to maintain their power. But again, this is not sustainable. This is something that at some point, as we're seeing in Iran and other places, when entire populations are degraded, they eventually push back, they rise up, they demand something happens. It's, you can't predict what's gonna happen or when, but it, it always happens. And I think the Saudis and Emiratis are gonna to have to come to uh, grips with this uh, situation. Both uh, of those countries are heavily involved in the war in Yemen, which uh, began in 2014. Their stated rationale for the war is to counter Iranian influence. And also most media reports kind of uh, reflexively uh, say that it's a Shia-Sunni conflict 
uh, and the two sides in Yemen are proxies. How do you see that conflict in Yemen, which has devastated the country? I mean, the, the number of deaths and injuries have just been astronomical. Oh, absolutely, and uh, it's been going on for years. And, um, and this is one of the great uh, new tragedies in our region, which is that regional powers like the UAE, like Saudi Arabia, like Israel, like Turkey, like Iran, and Egypt a little bit is trying to get into this game, regional powers are actively involved in proxy wars, creating them, funding them, training people, creating new armies. Um, and this is a, a real problem for our region because it's, we had enough trouble with colonial powers coming into the region, including the Russians now in Syria and carrying out brutal activities. But now we have our own regional warmongers and um, the rest of the world doesn't particularly care. This is one of the great tragedies of the modern Arab region. We don't matter a lot to the world anymore. It used to be we mattered in the Cold War because we were a bulwark against, many Arabs were a bulwark against communism. And it mattered because the West wanted above all to protect Israel. And it mattered because of the energy, the oil. So those three things um, were big reasons why you had decades and, and decades of uh, conflicts in the region with external intervention. Those reasons are, are no longer operative. The Israelis are very powerful. They can protect themselves. The Soviet Union is gone. Uh, Russia is still a player in the region, but uh, they're not as big a threat as the Soviets were. And the oil and energy situation is pretty stable. And people, uh, we've learned that people who have oil have to sell it. They can't sit on it. Uh, so um, the the uh, concern that the world had for conditions in the Arab region uh, is much less now than it used to be. There are no real strategic reasons for people around the world to focus on the, the Middle East and to make sure that the people of these countries uh, are able to live a decent life rather than to be um, subjugated by their own uh, killer regimes and and autocrats who are funded and aided and armed by foreign powers. And what happened in Yemen between the Saudis and the Emiratis, uh, and the Americans and the British were involved as well in certain technical stuff, refueling and uh, aircraft and stuff, maintenance, and um, has been totally ignored by the rest of the world. You're listening to Rami Khouri. Arab Autocracies and U.S. Policy. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Egypt is always mentioned as the most important uh, Arab country and the center of Arab culture. It's the third largest recipient of U.S. military aid in the world, behind only Ukraine and Israel, $1.3 billion. And it's a major human rights violator. The case of jailed dissident Allah Abdel Fattah has received some attention, as it should, but 
There are tens of thousands of political prisoners languishing in Egypt's prisons. The press is muzzled, and as you say, no one seems to care. The best estimates I have read are that around 50 to 60,000 people are in jail in Egypt for their political views. Most of them are Muslim brothers, but others are democracy activists and liberal reformers. The world doesn't really pay attention to this. These, these regimes have learned that the United States is not going to change its policy simply because of an individual activist or a human rights group or something like that. Um, and the U.S. and European countries are perfectly happy to engage with the dictatorial regime in Egypt, uh, partly because they think it's the best way to maintain stability. But the reality is that the, one of the big lessons of the last 50 years is that trying to maintain stability through autocratic government policies that deny citizens their rights uh, only guarantees future instability. And we saw it with the uprisings in 2010-11, some of which are still going on now. We're nearing a, a decision point uh, in terms of how foreign powers deal with Arab countries, especially autocratic, brutal Arab countries. Um, and uh, they can keep doing what they're doing now for another few years, five years, maybe 10 years, but the pressures internally, in demographic pressures, jobs, income, poverty, education, healthcare, water, I mean, the incredible pressures within Arab countries that the governments are not responding to are going to reach a point where they explode. Um, and everybody that I've talked to in the last few years anticipates some kind of explosion, but nobody can guess where it's going to happen and what, what's going to drive it. Let's talk about Lebanon, a country which you know very well. You've taught there, and I visited as well. And by the way, my parents met in Beirut and got married there in 1921. Oh, wow. And speaking of Beirut, it's once known as the Paris of the Orient. Uh, the country has, to say the least, fallen on bad times. Where does one start to describe the situation in, in Lebanon? What's your analysis of what's happened there? Well, that's the question that all Lebanese are asking. Where do we start to try to fix the situation? Uh, I lived through it. I've been there for the last 16 years. And um, uh, watching this deterioration happen, which was totally predictable, it was clearly going to happen, the Ponzi scheme the government had to maintain the value of the Lebanese lira, which let people live a decent life, that wasn't sustainable. And it fell apart in, in 2020. 20, uh, basically, early 2020. And 2019 also, 2019. the run on the banks. Well, in 2019, you had the political um, uh, protests, and then gradually into 2020, you had the collapse of the, um, of the economy. You know, this was particularly troubling because so many people had saved lots of money. Their life savings were in the banks, and they were no longer able to access them. Uh, so this added a new degree of bitterness and anger and desperation. And the Lebanese have tried everything. They've tried protests. They've tried uprisings. They've tried shaming ministers going to their homes, sitting under their balconies with signs and chanting. They've tried elections. They've tried NGO activism. They've tried appealing to the international community. They've tried everything. And they uh, have had no success. Uh, and this is the great tale of the entire region, as far as I can tell now, 
the Arab citizens uh, just don't exist, and they don't know what to do. They will do something, but we just have to wait and see another year, another two years, because regional conditions are going to change, domestic conditions are going to change, and environmental conditions are going to change. As you get more stress on water systems, uh, as, as climate change has more and more impact, forest fires, all kinds of things, uh, floods, uh, these are going to make life increasingly miserable for many people. So we don't know what is going to trigger the next wave of large-scale citizen rebellions, but we know that it's going to happen one day. Syria, another personal connection. After the Armenian genocide, my mother, who lost her parents and brothers in the genocide, spent six years in an orphanage in Aleppo before going to Beirut to meet my father. How would you assess the situation in Syria today? It seems that Assad has been able to crush or at least minimize the resistance against him and has solidified his power. What's going on in Syria? Syria is really the most dynamic, dramatic example of what happens when you allow people to get on with the business of fighting each other and challenging each other and um, creating new groups, militias, and po political forces that fight each other um, without any coherent system of you know, consultation or negotiation to resolve the problem. So the problem in Syria was that the, the majority of people got fed up with their autocratic system. They challenged the government. They, they, initially, they were asking for reform. They didn't say get rid of the government. But after a while, they saw nothing was going to happen, so they started saying get rid of the government. And, and the government fought back militarily, and this created uh, stresses. The, the opposition started asking for funds from abroad and arms from abroad, and they did get some from Arab countries and others. And so Syria completely got out of hand as an internal political contestation between citizens and their government and became a much bigger contest between armed groups who were fighting the government, who were way under underarmed, the government was much, much stronger and more brutal. So the government started you know, bombing homes and hospitals and neighborhoods. Uh, and then uh, two things happened. The opposition group started opening the way intentionally or unintentionally, we don't fully know, for Islamist groups to come in, jihadi groups like Al-Qaeda and others. And so it's Syria, uh, between 2000 and and 13 and, and 2016 became the kind of new global center for jihadis, as they call themselves, people who were in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda and others like that. Um, and they started coming to Syria because there was chaos, and that's where the jihadis thrive, when there's such chaos. And, and so that became one major development, which is the battle became between uh, Islamist militant groups, terrorist groups in many cases, and uh, the government. And the second thing was the Russians came in uh, with their uh, armed forces in a big way. Uh, and once the Russians came in... Uh, in support of Assad. In support of the government, yeah. And that meant that the opposition really had no, no chance. Uh, and the, the government of Syria was very brutal in fighting back and uh, asserting its control. 
And they did, and they stopped the rebellion across the country at a great cost, and of course, I don't know how many, two million people, I think, fled, two or three million people. Um, I think external refugees, and then there were internal refugees both. as yeah, well. Both, yeah, I think the total is half the Syrian population has been displaced, either externally or internally. Uh, and now you've got these, these rebel groups, including the Islamist jihadi armed groups, all contained in Idlib province, north of Damascus. Uh, the Turks don't particularly like it, though the Turks were helping some of them. The Kurds don't particularly like it, though they've been involved in some battles, and since the Russians are involved, and then the Americans are there. The Americans are in the north of Syria with a small armed group saying that they're there to fight ISIS, the Islamic State and the remnants of it. So it's, it's total free-for-all. It's a complete open field for anybody who wants to go in there with their guns and, and their uh, groups and their ideologies. And that's what's happened over the last uh, 10 years or so. Uh, it's stabilized now in the sense that the Syrian government is pretty much in control of, of about probably, I don't know, maybe two-thirds of the country. And the Russians and the Iranians and Hezbollah are all helping the Syrian government whenever it needs help, especially uh, military help. But it's, it's a total catastrophe because it's just perpetual oppression and warfare for the whole Syrian population. And now you're getting situations where, I don't know what the figures are, something like at least two-thirds of the Syrian population needs food aid to survive. They're having troubles with water and um, basic services all over the country. So the quality of life is deteriorating for the vast majority of Syrians. There's a small elite in Damascus and maybe parts of Aleppo that have a lot of money and they're in close links with the government. But the other fascinating and tragic thing is that because of this patchwork of different groups and different nationalities and different armed militias uh, working in the country, some of them real patriots who want to better Syria, some of them armed Islamist groups who want to create an Islamic state because there's chaos and they want to take advantage of it. Uh, and it's a terrible shame. We saw these things happening with our eyes open. We, there wasn't a big surprise. We, we saw the policies of Arab governments. We saw policies of neighboring states big powers and Israel and they all, Iran, they all did their thing and you could tell that something like this was going to happen because all they relied on was military force and they were not willing to compromise. In terms of the climate emergency, what's going to happen when the mystical it hits the fan? How much can people take when the temperature reaches 50 degrees centigrade, that's 122 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. If that doesn't motivate states to take mitigating measures, uh, what will? What are they waiting for? Well, when you say states, what you really have are governments and citizens. The governments are made up of individuals who tend to come into the government for a few years, maybe three, four, five years, and then they move out and somebody else comes in. So the government officials who have been responsible for environmental policies in Arab countries generally have not given this issue the attention it deserves. And this was something we could foresee because going back 50 years that I've been reporting in the Middle East, 
you could see this happening already in several areas where environmental issues were totally ignored by government officials. Uh, things like water depletion, not supporting the agricultural livelihoods of what used to be a majority of citizens across our region who lived in small and medium towns and villages and lived by farming. And all of that has diminished, it hasn't disappeared, but it's gone down because the governments needed to set up power structures and this happened in the big cities and the farmers, many of them left and came to the big cities to work as wage laborers and then when the economic crisis hit over the last 20 years, they ended up being poverty-stricken urban uh, internal refugees. So you saw the lack of serious attention to really critical environmental issues, land, arable land, water resources, things of that nature. And the, so when the climate issue became more clear as a threat, the governments did not pay any more attention to it than they did to the previous things. And we see this happening. Now they, they pay lip service. They, they say, oh, we're going to make the biggest solar farm in the world, and, which is a good thing to do. Uh, but that's not going to change the impact of climate change in the next 20 or 30 years. This is a, a clear dereliction of duty by government officials and the NGOs that have sprung up all over the region to alert people to this are doing great work, but they have no impact. And the citizens of the region who suffer the consequences of declining water, I mean, there's some places in Jordan and Syria and Egypt and other places, we, we get water once a week or once every two weeks for a couple of hours. And this creates, of course, nepotistic systems where, oh, if people don't have enough water, well, here's a company that has 20 water tankers that goes and gets water from somewhere and comes and delivers it to your house for a very high fee. And of course, those companies are owned by people close to the regimes. Same thing with electricity generation in Beirut. If you don't have enough electricity from the state, which you don't, uh, you people set up generators and sell power at the neighborhood level. And these are all, and the diesel distribution, these are all run by people who are close to the power structure. So you get this power structure, which has at its heart the rulers, usually the ruler and his family, and then you have political allies, many of whom could be tribal or other leaders, and then you have the circle of business associates, and all of these together create this, what I call the political ruling elite. And the political elite benefits from the misery that ordinary citizens feel. That is one of the reasons why they're not particularly pressured to change anything. And so it's astounding that the climate change predictions in the Arab world, in most places there's gonna be less water, and there's gonna be more heat, and these governments, these political elites, are not moved by this. And many analysts point to the dangers of armed conflicts erupting in the region around water and food issues. That's been a danger that many people have warned about for decades, but it hasn't really happened. Uh, you have uh, situations like in uh, Egypt and Sudan and Ethiopia with the Nile waters, and they're negotiating. Uh, they're gonna, they're, they uh, eventually all realize that military force is not gonna solve any of these problems. Um, so they negotiate, uh, and that's what's gonna happen, I think, 
all over the region. The situation in terms of water and other environmental issues is mostly solvable through a few simple policy changes, pricing uh, water, pricing energy, um, giving incentives for agricultural lands, and not allowing urban sprawl to take over lands that should be used for agriculture. Those are all decisions that can be made and policies could be changed that would uh, help stabilize a healthy environmental situation. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Jordan, a country where you've spent uh, quite a bit of time. The New York Times is reporting, I'm quoting, the country's namesake river is nearly running dry. The flow is less than 10% of its historic av average, and the Yarmouk River is greatly diminished. Rainfall has decreased precipitously in recent decades, and warmer temperatures mean that what rain does come evaporates rapidly. Longer and hotter summers have already shortened growing seasons for farmers. Now, the article goes on to mention that desalinization is a promising option, but it will take uh, quite a bit of time and an awful lot of money. Uh, Jordan could buy water from Israel, a pioneer in desalinization, in exchange for solar energy, but that won't sit well with, the, with Jordan's large Palestinian population. Well, Jordan has been a classic example of an Arab country that saw way back in the, in the 1970s, and I know this because I wrote a book on the Jordan Valley back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, so I was reading reports, talking to people um, in agriculture and other things. It was very clear that the water management system in the country was not sustainable. The population back then was around two million Jordanians. Now it's, I think, seven or eight, um, or even more. And uh, the stresses on the available water supplies are um, way too much for the natural reef plunishment of underground aquifers to manage. So everywhere there are water shortages, and people go to increasingly desperate uh, moves, like they're bringing underground fossil water from uh, the south, from where they run, there's huge reservoirs of water underground, um, and they're now pumping them out and bringing them up to Amman just to, for homes and industries and stuff. Um, and this is crazy, because that, that's not a re replenishable source. That should be there as a strategic reservoir for hundreds of years ahead. The simple things that need to be done to alleviate the water problems in Jordan are, have been known for 40 or 50 years. Uh, the water has to be priced better um, to reflect its real value. Uh, you can't have 70 or 80 percent of your water go to agriculture, uh, which is only helping a few rich merchants, some of which will just export this stuff. So you're exporting water in the form of watermelons and oranges and stuff that are then sold to people in uh, foreign countries. It's crazy. So you have to change how the water is allocated uh, to serve your own people. Uh, I can't remember the exact figure, but I think it's around 30% of the water in the urban distribution networks is lost before it reaches the home, people's homes. It's because they're leaking and they're, um, they have to be fixed. And then finally, there are many people around the country who just drill a well 
in their property and pull water out from under the ground uh, without having the well licensed. And this, again, further depletes. So these are simple kinds of measures that people can take um, that uh, simply have not been done in a, serious, uh, in a serious way. And it goes back to the same old problem, that citizens who are suffering the consequences of difficult situations, in this case, say, water, uh, they don't have a way in which they can influence the policymakers to take the right policies to reduce the stresses that the citizens feel. They just don't have a way to do it, and the political elite can do what it wants, and uh, this has been the pattern. The political elite just ignores these warnings. They, they, they might do some symbolic things here or there, but no serious changes are done. Where are the openings in the Arab region that give you hope and encouragement? Well, there's a lot of those, and you're right to mention them, because what I notice in the region, and I've noticed for the last 50 years, is the incredible dynamism of ordinary people. First of all, there's an uh, insatiable thirst for education. People in the Arab region love to go to training courses and to get educated. But the problem is they get educated, but then there aren't enough jobs for them. So people have to become more creative. And so you've got some great examples in uh, many Arab countries of uh, entrepreneurs who come up with new ideas, new businesses. Uh, the difficulty with these things is they're not huge job creators. So the, the real challenge in the Arab world the single probably most important challenge at the human level is to find gainful employment for the uh, millions and millions of young people who are graduating from high school and, and college uh, every year. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, creativity there. Uh, people take initiatives. There's a lot of self-help community-based work that people do all over the region. We saw this in the uprisings in Algeria and Sudan and Iraq and Lebanon where people at the community level would organize themselves to provide the things that their citizens needed that their government was not providing. So it's really the dynamism, the creativity, and the determination of ordinary people to fix their societies. They, they're not passively accepting that they are victims of a corrupt, inefficient political system. They know that's the case, but they don't want to acquiesce and live in it, and they keep trying to figure out what, what they can do. This is, I think, the most hopeful uh, thing that I see. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. You were just listening to Rami Khouri, Arab Autocracies and U.S. Policy. I talked with him in Denver in early December. Rami Khouri, a veteran journalist, is a senior fellow with the Middle East Initiative at the Belfer Center at Harvard's Kennedy School. He was the founding director of the Issam Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs at the American University of Beirut. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Sarah Lee Whitson, Noam Chomsky, Vijay Prashad, Chris Hedges, 
Arundhati Roy, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Rami Khouri, Arab Autocracies and U.S. Policy, and for Edward Said's books, The Pen and the Sword and Culture and Resistance, just call us, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free. Just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. Sergio Atala recorded the program. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.